Thank you, Don. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here this morning. I'm David. I'm an alcoholic. I'm from Fayetteville, North Carolina, and I bring you greetings from Keith L., who is my sponsor. And I'm going to take that story back, Don, about him not dressing up. What a privilege to be here. It's, uh, it's a real privilege in the sense that I needed this weekend. You know, I did not know how much I needed this weekend until I got here. Uh, and yesterday, I started to, yesterday morning in my quiet time, I realized how unquiet I was compared to the surroundings. And I was looking out at the fog, and that was pretty quiet. But I was looking out, and I realized how unquiet I was. And so this has been a very, very good healing experience for me. Thank you. To the committee, I thank you. You run an excellent conference. And I really mean that. And Liz H., you're wonderful. You're wonderful. She does a good job for us. She does a fantastic job. She's quite an ambassador for, for this conference. I want to thank my co-host. And my, they started out host, and I've now got co-host. And it's been wonderful. David and Mary Lee, they, have, they met me at the airport. They had soft drinks on ice. They had coffee in the thermos. I mean, we were in high cotton all the way down here. And I want to thank you. They've hung with me all weekend down to the, to the river. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure meeting you. And my co-host, we met them when we got here, are Sam and Henny. What a wonderful couple. Thank you for sharing this weekend with me, too. And we got pictures, and we were down at the regatta yesterday. I really enjoyed it, and I'll take back a lot of memories. And I look forward to y'all coming to North Carolina someday. As I said, I bring uh, greetings to my sponsor, Keith L., and from my, my home group. Keith is, I think, going to speak at the Indiana State Convention in March. And, uh, and, and he and I have been a part of the same home group. It's the new group, and I want to tell you about it. It's a Monday night step study meeting. And I think it's the best step-study meeting in AA. I'm real partial, though. I want to tell you that. I am real partial. But I really like it. And, and uh, we are there every Monday night. Keith has just moved to Wilmington, so we've lost him out of our, our meeting. But, boy, we're going to miss him, too. I want to talk to you about, about a disease I have. It's a spiritual disease, and I did not know that until I got to you. It's a disease that is characterized by an obsession of the body and a compulsion of the body and an obsession of the mind. You know, I, when I drank, I compulsively wanted to because I remember what it did the last time, or really the first few times. But I remember, and I compulsively wanted to go there again. And when I drank, I had a mental obsession to want more. And I didn't know that's what was going on until I got here. There's a section of the big book I want to read this morning, and, and I normally don't do this, but it, to me it's a very special section. It's in chapter 4. We agnostics. And it goes, lack of power. That was our dilemma. We had to find a power by which we could live, and it had to be a power greater than ourselves. Obviously. But where and how were we to find this power? Well, that's exactly what this book is all about. Its main object is to enable you to find a power greater than yourself which will solve your problem. That means we have written a book which we believe to be spiritual as well as moral. And it means, of course that we're going to talk about God. That, to me, is a wonderful promise. You see, I did not know I was spiritually sick. I, I found myself in a hole, a spiritual hole. I didn't know that either. I just knew I never could get out of it, whatever I was in. I kept trying. I really tried all of my life to be good, and I never could be good enough. I never could. And I heard that yesterday from Kathy. I heard that from you. And you know, what, I, what I'm finding is that the steps, the 12 steps, because I always tried to jump out of my spiritual hole. I don't know if you ever tried it, but you know, I just would try to jump, and I'd try to land at another place. 
and I never could. And every time I jumped to try to land in another place, I found myself deeper in the hole that I started out in. I couldn't figure it out. You know, I went down to the altar calls, and I, and I had people lay their hands and, and pray, and nothing worked. It worked for an hour. It worked great. Right. So I got out of church, you know, and I went home. And then me was there. <laughs> I was with me. And the insanity started again. And I didn't know what to do about it. And I found something at age 19, and it worked. It was called alcohol, and it worked for me. It took that insanity away. You see, when I got here, I did not know I needed a spiritual bridge. I, need, I think I need two things, and I found that I'm needing two things to spiritually change. And that is, first, the steps, because I can't jump out of my hole, but the 12 steps truly let me take little steps at a time out of my hole, out of my spiritual hole. And I did not know that. The other thing I need is a spiritual bridge. When I get up there, I need a bridge. And, and what happened yesterday, and Burns, it started with you on Friday, and Dixie, uh, thank you very much, both of you. Um, Kathy, thank you for yesterday, and Bill, last night. You provided me a spiritual bridge by which I could go back and look at what happened in my life that's similar to what has happened in yours. And in so doing, I realize I'm not alone. You see, my, 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 my one, one problem is I feel abjectly, when I came here, abjectly alone. In fact, my sponsor said to me, he said, David, if you keep coming to these meetings, and I had to go to that Monday night step meeting, that was a requirement, that or even the sponsor me. If you keep coming to this meeting, you keep working these steps, you'll never, ever have to be alone again. See, when he said that for the first moment, for the first moment, I realized that I was. See, I, had, I didn't know that. I thought I was in pretty good shape. I didn't know I was alone. I had no idea, no clue. Let me go back and share with you a few experiences and some strength and hopefully some hope out of those experiences that happened in my life. And this is all through my four-step work and, and through some sixth and seventh and eight-step work. But going back, let me share this with you. The first conscious memory I have, and when I got here, I had big holes in my past. I mean, I don't know about you, but I mean, my childhood was nothing but a void uh, with a couple of bad experiences. <laughs> and they were kind of salt and pepper through the years. I mean, that's, I could remember the bad times. But I couldn't remember the good times. I couldn't remember any of the times. Teachers, I mean, it was just like a black hole. And in, in working the steps and in working the program and in listening to you, that spiritual bridge again, in listening to you, I have been able to go back and pick up. And the wonderful thing about it, the neat thing about it, when I first started, I, I didn't want to go back. I was scared to death to look back. I was absolutely, abjectly scared to death because I had spent my life pushing it down, pushing it and hiding it and being okay and being fine. And, and when I went back, a wonderful thing happened. I was able to discover the good with the bad. I was able to see some fun things that happened, some real neat things that happened that I had totally forgotten because I was trying to push the bad away. And I pushed it all away. But the first memory I had consciously, I think I was five or six somewhere in there. I have no idea exactly. But I was in a car with my mother and my brother Larry. He's 16 months and three days older. He was then and he is today. We haven't changed. And haven't <laughs> grown up a bit. And... Uh, he was in the back seat with me, and my mother was in the front, and we were going to an aunt's house. I have no idea who this aunt was, but uh, it was one of them, so I'm going to call her Aunt Sue, because that's one of my aunts, but I don't know which one it was. But I was in the back seat, and my mother pointed in the back seat like this, you know, that big old long finger, and she was in the passenger side, and I was behind my dad, so she was pointing right at me, and she said, Now, when we get there, don't y'all ask for one thing. Because when we leave there, I don't want Aunt Sue to say, Letha and Claudia, that's my mom and my dad, they're welcome back here, but those mean young'uns had better never come again. Now, young'uns is a southern term for children. Sorry, I throw that in. But those mean young'uns had better never come. You know, and I didn't want to be a mean young'un. 
I, I didn't want to be. And so what I heard, see, I saw that finger point right at me, and I, I heard that, uh, I, don't ask me anything. And the next memory I have is I was sitting on a wooden bench, and I, I don't know if you ever did this, but I sat on my hands. I was afraid if my hands were free, I'd touch something. And I didn't want to touch anything, be in trouble. So I was sitting there on my hands, and, and I started doing this. I really believe I started doing this at a young age because I've done it all my life. And I'm just learning in recovery. I don't have to. And that's being fine. I don't know what you... Here's, here's how being fine is. I shake my head. I'm not Japanese either. I mean, it's like... It's like I'm Japanese or something. I'm, I'm shaking my head and I'm smiling. And I'm saying, I'm fine. How are you? I'm fine. How are you? I'm, I'm fine. Or yes. I say yes a lot. You know, I've gotten myself into more commitments. <laughs> I'm thinking about moving on Friday. Oh, yes. Oh, you'll help me. Good. I didn't want to help him. I didn't, didn't want to... I'm fine. But I sat there, and when my aunt or uncle walked by, you know what I did? I just, I just smiled. I'm fine. Yes. You know. I don't know if you know what I'm talking about, but I've lived that way. I had to be enough. I had to be enough. And you know what happened there? And I've been sharing this with Henny all weekend. I had to use the bathroom there. I was afraid to ask. Now, I want to tell you, that stayed with me. That stayed with me. And in fact, in recovery, only two years ago, I went through some codependency treatment, and my counselor looked at me and she said, I was telling about this. I was afraid to go to the bathroom. I've been in business meetings hurting. And you know what? I was afraid to go because I knew if I went, they'd know where I've been. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? You know what I'm saying? And more importantly, this was the tough part. When I got in the bathroom, I knew that when I went back, they were sure to know. And I didn't want to go back. You know, it's like, how do I get back in that room? You know, you walk like this. I, mean, I don't know. I was afraid to go. I was afraid I was going to be in trouble. And about two years ago, this counselor told me, she said, you have my permission to leave any meeting that you want to and go to the bathroom. She said, you can go to the bathroom even when you don't have to. She said, she said you can go in and kind of rake your hair and, you know, fix yourself up and wash your hands and walk back in. I said, really? Yeah. She said, when I got here, I truly did not know how to live. I had a set of understandings and it's out of my experiences that caused me to do certain things that I thought were right. I thought everybody <laughs> was afraid to go to the bathroom. I really did. And what I'm finding is, that's not true. By your sharing with me that spiritual bridge again, I can see that I'm wrong. I can see that I'm wrong. But I remember, I, after we left my aunt's house that day, I got in the car and I said, how did I do? And I waited all of three seconds. How did I do? I've spent my life trying to be, how did I do? I've asked you that. You know, I've, I've said things, and I'm, I really have tried to be a cash register honest person. I was sharing this with Ed last night. A cash register honest person. You know, if you gave me $10 and said, buy me something, I'd bring you the receipt, and I'd count back the pennies and the dimes and the nickels, and I want you to make sure you had your money and that you knew I'm honest. And the truth is, I'm not honest, and I'm having to get honest in recovery because I said things to please you. I said things to get your acceptance of me because I didn't think I was fine. And you said, hey, like this dress. Oh, I love that dress. I really don't. Or I volunteer. That's the worst part. I volunteer. Oh, I love that. And I don't. But I figure if I can get you indebted to me, then I'm okay. Then I'm fine. You see, I've spent my life doing that. Trying to be fine. Trying to be fine. As a child, and I want to say, uh, Burns is kind of like the revving motor. I love that example. And Kathy, the same thing you said yesterday about the thinking, got to think it. You know, I came in my drinking within 10 minutes and two beers of having it all figured out numerous times. You know what I'm saying? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. You know, you, give me two more beers. Get, I, I used to write notes to myself on napkins. I mean, I had some wonderful notes. 
I wrote poems and songs. I mean, you know, crying in my beer, you know, and I'd sit down and I'd just write all these notes. And uh, I had it almost figured out. I mean, I really did. If, if, just give me ten more minutes. You know, don't close now. Last call, wait a minute, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I almost got it. I did that numerous nights. And the next morning I'd look at my notes and many times I couldn't, you know, like, mm, 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 I couldn't even read them. I was so drunk. But I came close. You see, I've got a disease. I heard this in Dallas, Texas in 1988, a guy named Joe, and I, I really am grateful to him. I was in a meeting in, at, a, at a Methodist church in downtown Dallas, a noontime meeting, and he stood up and he was saying, I have a disease, I'm an alcoholic, and he said, alcoholism is a disease characterized by pyramiding thoughts. And I went, whoa. <laughs> now what do I do with that? I said, what do you mean? <laughs> nice, nice deal. He said, it's, it's an upside down pyramid. It's like this. He said, this is how I think. And I'm going to share this with you because it's real, real for me. It's a very painful thing for me. And it's a way that I have learned to think because I am basically afraid. And I've been afraid all my life. I've been afraid all my life. Let me tell you how fear affects me. Fear for me starts right in here, right in, down in my stomach, the lower part of my stomach. It starts as a little ball. And it gets to be a tennis ball. And it gets to be a basketball. If I stay with it long enough, and I stay afraid long enough, and then I can't breathe. It's like my chest is like an elephant put on it. I can't quite breathe well. Then I have tension in my neck and up into my head up here. And I get diarrhea. I can't eat well. I can't sleep well. If I stay with it long enough, I flunk tests because I'm afraid I don't know the answers. And I know the answers very well. But I cannot make my brain make sense. And I've lived like that. Because of this thinking pattern in my, you know, obviously I believe it is, and I'm afraid, and out of that fear comes this thinking. Here's how it works. I can be in my office at 10 o'clock, and I can be fine. You know, you're fine, how you doing? I'm fine, you know. I can be in my office, and okay, I mean, really, I'm doing my work, everything's okay. My boss walks by, and I say, good morning, Don. And he doesn't speak. Here it goes. Here it goes. Here it goes. Now it's fine. Question, third, first thought, I wonder why he didn't speak. Second thought, he must be upset with me. Third thought, must be that report I gave him yesterday. He must not like it. Fourth thought, we got that meaning to that he's going to fire me. In a matter of seconds, literally, I fill up this, this upside-down pyramid, and in a matter of seconds, I am waiting on the unemployment line at Ray Avenue waiting for an unemployment check. You know what I'm saying? And you know what I do? I get so afraid that I stay in my office and because I'm afraid if I walk out in the hall, he'll be there and go, you're fired. I mean, you're, I mean you'll be waiting for me. And you know what I do? I stay in there and won't even go to the bathroom. <laughs> I walk out. You know? Hurt me again. You know what I'm saying? Won't even go to the bathroom. Yeah, I'm going to tell you, here's what happens to me. I go on that pyramid for a while and you know what I do? I get to Ray Avenue to the unemployment office and I think, well, what if they won't give me a check? Here goes another pyramid. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I build pyramids on top of pyramids. And I've got three or four of these things up here. And I carry them around. It's a weighty thing. It's painful. It's very emotionally draining. It's very emotionally draining. Now, when I drank my first beer, guess what happened? I didn't have any of those. Pretty daggone wonderful. I could sing and dance. I could tell jokes. I have a sense of humor. I wasn't weighted down. You see, I thought I did pyramiding thinking with just bad things. And let me share with you, about 18 months ago, I was in the shower one morning, and I was humming a country and western tune. Now, I don't know why I was doing that, because nothing was wrong in my life. I mean, it was a pretty good day, you know. <laughs> it was all right, you know. 
But it was a pretty good day. And so I was humming this country and western tune. And let me tell you what happened. I got out of the shower, dried off, was at the scene, and I was shaving. And the next conscious thought I had was, where am I going to get a tour bus? Now let me tell you what happened. Let's go back. <laughs> let me retrace this for you. First thought. Hmm, that sounds pretty good. Yeah, you know, I was humming, right? That sounds pretty good. And I bet if I got a band together, I could sing country and western music. Yeah? You with me so far? And if I get a band together and I start singing country and western music, maybe I need to go to Nashville, because that's where all the country and western singers are. And if I go out there and play a couple of gigs, you know, around town, get an agent, get an attorney, you know, I'll need a tour bus. Right, right. It makes sense. You know, I'll need a tour bus. You see? That's weighty stuff. What a way to start your day. Worrying about a tour bus. You know what I'm saying? Getting ready to go to work. Got to get my tour bus. Nothing wrong with me. I do it with clothes. I don't know if y'all ever do this, but I, you know, I, I wake up and I, you know, what am I going to do? I'm going to wear this and here go these pyramids. I don't know. Maybe so-and-so won't like it. Maybe it won't get looking. at Oh, jeez, I got shirts out and I got ties out. I mean, do it with everything. You see, I did not know that. I did not know I did that. But I believe I do that. And it's how I have learned to live. Because I thought it was absolutely essential to survive. You see, I could just think a little bit more. I'd have it figured out. Just a little, just a little. Okay, that much. Give me another minute. I'd figure it out. It never worked. It never worked. Lack of power is my dilemma. Lack of power. I was going to figure it out. At 13, I real, when I came into the program and started working my fourth step, I realized how superstitious I am. And a lot of it, it goes back to what happened when I was 13 and Friday the 13th and all. But I was 13 years old. We lived in a rural environment outside of Raleigh. And we had two pigs and 13 chickens. Uh, there goes 13 again. And a couple of roosters. And uh, we had a bunch of butter beans, a bunch of corn. And my brother and I, and my, my mother, Aunt Marie, and my, my mother, we'd get up at like 5.30 and we'd pick butter beans. She loved butter beans. My dad loved them too. And we had a bunch of those little things. And... Uh, and my mother, she did something real interesting. When you bought 200 pounds of Purina pig feed, you got four yards of cotton gingham cloth. I don't know if you ever, anybody ever seen that? It's, it's, this is the worst looking cloth you've ever seen. It's, it's white cloth, all these flowery designs on it. Oh, jeez, it was terrible looking. My mother loved that cloth. <laughs> she thought that was the best cloth world. So she washed this stuff and sized it. That's a southern term for starch. And she starched this stuff. And she cut out her, these patterns and she made these shirts and made my brother Larry shirts. Now, I want to tell you about my pig feed sack shirts. I see somebody out here who wore them too. I can see. Yeah. yeah I can see the look on your face. Yeah. The pig feed sack shirts. <laughs> These shirts had a unique thing. They, they look pretty good. My mother starched these things. She believed that starch was next to godliness or something. I'm not sure. <laughs> these things were starched. And these collars, they had a unique collar design. These collars came right here and they started out and they went on out to a point. <laughs> about, about four to six inches off the shoulder blade. You know, they were kind of hanging out there. And it was before the flying nun was popular on TV. You know? <laughs> but, but it was kind of one of those things, sister. You know, you just, I'd get caught in the wind, you know, and these old collars started flapping, you know. And I'd be, and I was a skinny little red-headed boy, you know, and I had my books under one arm, my basket, my lunch in the other, and I'd stick it on my arm, and I'd run for the school bus, and my, my, my wings, my collars would catch wind, you know, they'd start, you know, they'd start flapping. And so I learned, I learned how to run and, and pad in place, and I just run and pad, you know, just run and pad, trying to keep those collars. I did not like my pig feet sack shirt, can y'all tell? <laughs> and you know, I know now that's my pride and my ego, but I didn't know it then. I had no idea. I knew that I didn't like those shirts, and I knew that everybody knew that I had those pig feet sack shirts on, and I knew where they came from. You know? 
it was August of my 13th year, and uh, we'd been picking butter beans, and I was wearing a pig feed sack shirt. That's what brought it up. <laughs> I was wearing my pig feed sack shirt that day, and, and we'd been picking butter beans all morning, shelling them all afternoon. It was really a hot day. And my mom said, David, go get your eggs. Now, I'm going to tell you, I had 13 hens, and one of them was irregular. She laid every other day. So one day I'd get 12 eggs, and the next day I'd get 13. These were imported eggs because they fed our family, but also I'd sell the extra dozen now and then for 29 cents at Mr. Saul's store for my candy. You know, that's, that was my spending money. And so uh, I got, she said, go get your eggs. I had a little half-pound Maxwell House coffee can. And, uh, and I, I kept it every day at the back door. And I grabbed my half-pound Maxwell House coffee can and put my eggs in. And I jumped on my little 21-inch bicycle. Let me tell you about my bicycle. My daddy brought it home from a, a junkyard, five bucks, five bucks special. And I don't know if y'all have this up here, but we, uh, we paint our lawn furniture. It's called lawn chair green. <laughs> Everything's green. Just grunge, I call it grunge green. Well, that's the only paint I could find, but I sanded my bicycle and I painted it grunge green. So here I am with my 21-inch grunge green bicycle, my half-pound Maxwell House coffee can, and I jump on it and I'm running to get my eggs. And my mother said, David, don't you ride that bike. You'll fall and break those eggs. And I pretended I didn't hear it because I've done this a hundred times. So I get down there and I get my 13 eggs, put them in my basket, my little can, and I'm riding along with my can in my right hand, and I get up to the back door, and I hit my brakes, and I felt my car, my, excuse me, my bike, not my car, my bike sliding to the left. And before I knew it, I was in a mud slick. I was down on my right side. My face was in 13 raw eggs. I was muddy all down my side. My pig feet sack shirt got messed up. And I was laying half under that bike and half on top. Now, I tell you this story because it's real important to me. I think it was a turning point in my life. At that point, my mother went kind of berserk. And I started to get up. Every time I fall, I feel like i got to get up. I don't know if y'all ever feel that way. But every time I, I So I started to get up. Well, she came over and she kicked me back down. Well, I started to get up and she kicked me back down. And I started to get up and she kicked me back down. And I don't know how many times that went on, but it went on several. And finally, my, my aunt yelled at her. She said, Letha, you're going to kill that boy. And I was real grateful for my aunt. And I laid back down. And I had all this raw egg on me. I was absolutely ashamed. I was afraid. I was panicked. And, and I started to get back up. I thought, it's over. And she took the broom that she'd been sweeping the halls and she broke it across my back. And I want to tell you, I hurt, physically hurt. And when I fell that time, I laid there. And here's something that happened. I really believe this. At that moment, in the next few moments, in the next few days, in the next few months, I made a conscious choice. The God that I had understood was not helping me. He wasn't. It didn't work. I had tried to be that good boy, Burns. I tried. It didn't work. It didn't work. And as I lay there, I decided that if I could ever get out of this hole I'm in, if I could ever get out of this raw egg and this mud, if I could ever get up from there, that I would never pick another butterbean. I'd never collect another egg. I'd never feed another pig. I would buy some store-bought shirts. I'd be successful. I did not know what successful was. I had no idea. But I was going to be there. And my uncle, Alfonso, was the only successful person in our family. They kept talking about how successful he was. And he was an attorney. So I thought maybe I ought to be an attorney. I made those decisions over the next several weeks, the next several months. I'm going to do something different. This is not working. I got real serious. I stopped talking like Donald Duck. I really did. I stopped telling jokes. I got real serious about this thing called life. I had to get out of there. I had to survive. I had to. By the time I got to high school and college, I went into politics. I ran for 22 offices, lost the first, ran the, won the next 21, got very involved in life. And I was so involved in life and in being good and being that perfect son 
that, uh, that I thought I was doing okay. And then my first girlfriend broke up with me when I was 19. And here's an interesting thing that happened. She broke up with me when I was 19. And, and uh, I went out the next night and I had a, my first beer. First drink. And I had a tall Pabst Blue Ribbon. And as I sat there and drank that drink, guess what happened to me? Something magical happened to me. Something wonderful happened to me. I stopped thinking. I stopped being afraid. I stopped being concerned about being successful even. I stopped. I was able to be at peace, be still. And I was able to dance and sing, Jack. I mean, I could, I could sing. Man, I was a good dancer. You know, and I sat there with my roommate, Hud, and I said, when can we come back and do this again? I didn't know I, had, I could do it by myself. I hadn't learned that at that point. Now, I want to tell you, I learned it later. But when can we come back and do this again? And so I came back and I drank. And I was 19. At age 21, I was getting married. And three days before my marriage, I pulled a muscle in my back and I went to the hospital because the doctor said he didn't know if I could get married. And he gave me a thing called Valium. And he said, this muscle spasm will go away. And he gave me Darvon 65 milligrams. He said, the pain will go away. And he said, you take this every four hours. That was in August of 1968. And I took it every four hours until April of 1988. <laughs> if it worked one time, why not? <laughs> why not 240,000 times? I mean, come on. I was very faithful to that prescription. I, mean, I, take that, I say that at this meeting because it's a very important part of my story. I kept drinking. I didn't stop drinking, but that was just something that tied me over. You see, I had this concept of alcoholism. And alcoholism was a disease, or it wasn't, it wasn't a disease, it was just being bad. It was just bad. I had an uncle who, who died a very tragic death, and I watched him growing up as he lived at times in the back of my home in the woods in cardboard boxes, coming and begging my mom for, for food and, and for a bath and for money so he could buy another pint of wine. I saw that. You see, and, and I wasn't that bad. I wasn't that. I mean, I was... I had a job, <laughs> I had a house, everything was going along fine. And so throughout my drinking career of 22 years that I drank, I wasn't that bad. See, I had rules. I couldn't drink before 5 o'clock. I'd be an alcoholic. I couldn't miss work because I got drunk the night before. I'd be an alcoholic. And so I'd show up drunk. Hadn't sobered up from the night before. Teaching training school. You know, whatever I had to do that day. Some real sick stuff. But I want to share with you that first drink, but I also most importantly want to share with you the last drink. Not the exact last drink, but the last period of drinking. When I was 38 and 39, going into 40, here's what my drinking was like. It was absolutely, abjectly miserable. You see, here's what would happen. My typical day, I had started to, to uh, break my little 501 rule. You know, just a little vodka. I drank Diet Pepsis all the time. I had them on my desk all the time. And what I started doing was mixing a little vodka with Diet Pepsi. That's a horrible tasting drink. But it got the job done, and it looked very good. You see, my, my dilemma is that I have thought all of my life, in order to be fine, I've had to look good. You know? Had to look good. And if I look good outside, then I would be okay to you inside. You know, and I've compared, I've compared what I feel like inside to what you look like outside, and I've lost every time I've done that. And I've done that all my life. What's wrong with me? I, she looks like she's okay. She doesn't look, she's afraid. I, I'm afraid. For the last two years, here's what would happen. I'd start drinking earlier, and by the time I, start, I went to treatment, I was drinking at about 2.30 in the afternoon, drinking my vodka, getting drunk. And then I'd go get a 12-pack of Coors Light, and I'd go to three different convenience stores because everything was very secretive in my drinking. I did not want anybody to know I, was, I had a problem. I had to be fine. I mean, I just had to be fine. 
And I would go to one today, and one the next day, and the third one the next day, so that they wouldn't think I was drinking a lot. And I'd go in and make excuses. Like, Monday night excuse was, hey, I've got some guys coming over, big, heavy drinkers. Yeah, I'm going to get two 12-packs tonight. Nobody was coming over. Nobody, they stopped coming over. You see, I ran out of answers to the questions. My ultimate fear was that if you asked me a question, I would not have an answer. That's my ultimate fear. The ultimate fear I had was that you're going to find out that I'm afraid. And so in order to be not afraid, in order to be okay and fine, in order to have the answers, I basically gave you an answer. Ask me a question, I have an answer. may not be right, but it's okay, it's an answer. And I ran out of answers. And so I would leave that place, that convenience store with my 12-pack. I wouldn't ask for little brown paper bags because I know I was going to drink it. And so I would go down into a little cul-de-sac, and, and, and on the way I'd tear off the top of the brown paper bag, and I'd take a beer out, and I'd pop the top, and I'd wrap it with a brown paper bag. And I don't know if you ever did this, but I learned how to drive. It's called the quadrangle view. <laughs> you know, you're constantly looking, you know, rear view mirrors, you know, trying to see if policemen are coming. You know, and I was taking sips, trying to figure out how to get there without being caught, but I had to have a sip of beer. And I get to my cul-de-sac, this little dead-end street, and I drink three or four, and something wonderful and magical happened between the third and the fourth beer. Everything was okay. I could go home. And so I'd go home. And I'd walk in, I'd check the kitchen. If my wife wasn't in the kitchen, I'd go in and I'd pull the celery, carrots, and lettuce off the bottom shelf. I'd take the beers and I'd, I'd sling them across the bottom. I'd cover them up. I'm thinking nobody's going to see them down on the bottom shelf. Push the door closed. Take my case and put it halfway down in the garbage and go in and say, How are y'all? I'm home. And I'm fine. I'm fine. Y'all want to talk? And they'd start talking. You know, they'd tell me about what happened to David today. And they would tell me what happened to Scott today. And the washing machine was making a noise. 30, 45 minutes into this deal, I'd say, excuse me, I've got to go to the bathroom. And I'd walk over to the kitchen. All, most of the time, wore sports jackets like this. And I'd go over to the kitchen, I'd open the fridge, and I'd put a beer in the left pocket, and I'd put a beer in the right pocket, and I'd walk humpback like this. <laughs> see, if I walked straight up, you could see my beer. So I'd walk humpback to the, to the bathroom. And I'd go down to this five-foot-by-seven-foot room. And I would go down to this five-foot-by-seven-foot room, and I'd go in, and I'd lock the door, and I'd sit down on the toilet, and I'd take out my two beers. I'd get up, pick up a magazine off a magazine rack. I'd take out a pack of cigarettes. I was a closet smoker. Nobody knew I smoked. I mean, really, nobody knew it. Come on. For five years. But I'd take out my cigarettes, and I'd light up, and I'd sit there drinking my beer, looking at the magazine. How much better could you want life to be? Think about it. What a place. And I'd finish my two beers, wrap them each one in toilet tissue, put them back in my coat pockets. I'd, walk, I'd flush the, the ashes and the, and the cigarette butts down the toilet, take my Lysol spray and spray me and spray the room so nobody could smell me smoking. And I walk back in, I go to the trash can, I dump them in the trash can, I walk back in and say, now what are we all talking about? The washing machine is making a noise or something? I was fine. 30, 45 minutes later, I'd say, excuse me, i got to go to the bathroom. I do do the same thing all night long until I ran out of alcohol. Then I'd get in my car and go get some more. I wouldn't buy more than 12 because they wouldn't drink more than 12. I know my children thought I had the worst case of dysentery of any human being that ever lived. The last two years I drank, the majority of the time that I was home, I spent in a five foot by seven foot bathroom. You know why? Because I didn't have to answer your questions. I didn't have to answer the phone when it rang. I'm in the bathroom. I can't answer the phone. Good excuse. Somebody come to the door. I'm sorry, David's indisposed. That was a good excuse. You see, here's what it was like. When I was there in my house and I was by myself, and if a doorbell rang, I would get out of my pink chair. Now, if my wife and children were going, you know what I do? I'd take the beer out and I'd put it beside my easy chair. Things like I owned the place or something. You know what I mean? I was like, wow, they're gone. You know? And every Saturday, I'd want them to go. I'd want them to go. 
I'd get them mad, I'd give them money to go to the mall just to get them out of the house. Because I could, yeah, four hours, I was out of my little room. The doorbell would ring. You know what would happen? I'd get on, crawl out of the chair on my belly, and I would crawl across the den floor into the hall, and I'd push the door to it. And I'd stay there scared to death until I thought they'd left. And then I'd get hacked off because I left my beer by the chair. And why didn't at least bring my beer with me? I wouldn't answer the phone. My wife and I had a system the last 18 months I drank. If she was out of the house and she wanted to talk to me, she called and let it ring seven times, hung up and immediately called back. And on the second ring, I'd pick it up. I would not talk to anyone. I did not have the answers. I could not be fine anymore. I did not know what to do. And every Saturday that I drank, I planned to drown myself the next Saturday. I live on a lake and I have a boat and I was going to drown. I had a very detailed plan. I was going to take two cinder blocks and put it in the boat with a rope and a coil of rope and I was going to go out and I was going to throw this anchor into the water and I was going to tie it to my left foot, my ankle, and I was going to jump in with these blocks. I was going to let the blocks go and all these air bubbles were going to come up. And I sat there and got drunk thinking this plan out. I mean, every Saturday. It was the only answer I had. And, and I would think this plan out and I'd go through this plan very detailedly. And, and I'd let the blocks go and I'd, I'd take a deep breath. I'd look up at the surface and all these air bubbles going up and I'd take a deep breath and I'd feel the burning. And then I was in my casket. I mean, I knew it was a casket because it was soft cloth around my head. And I'd look up at the ceiling and people would be walking by. I could see their hands. And I'm not kidding. And you know what they'd say? They'd say, poor David, he worked himself to death. Next guy come out, you know, poor David. If he hadn't married that woman he married, he'd have been an okay guy. Poor David. Those two children about driven that man crazy. Poor David. Four or five such poor neighbors and I come to. And I always came to because I knew that I could not tie and did not tie the rope right. I knew that you were going to know when you found me that I tied that rope. And I wanted to go like an axle bend slip on my ankle, jerk me in the, in the water deep. <laughs> At one time, I was going to volunteer to be a Boy Scout leader to learn how to tie exotic knots. I mean, I really thought that might be an answer. I thought about this stuff. I thought about this. You know, this pyramid was going crazy. I was going to figure it out. You see, the only answer I had and then finally, thank God, my family came to me and my boss and he said, you're sick, you're really sick, you need some help. And in an attempt to please my father-in-law, I went to treatment. I'm very grateful that I did that. And I really believe that my disease helped save my life. Because I wanted to be fine, even in treatment. And I went to treatment in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. I met a, a lady named Clara. She's a wonderful counselor. And, and I was looking good in treatment, I want to tell you. Uh, I had some starch shirts with me. I mean, I was looking good. And uh, about the third day, I was sitting in treatment. And this comes down to, the, to the, the fact that these are the steps. And I really believe this is how the steps have worked in my life. Is that this whole concept of coming to believe that a power greater than myself can restore me to sanity. I did not know that that was a, a, a process thing. For me. But I was sitting in treatment and she said, you're angry. And I said, I'm not angry. She said, yes, you are. And I said, I'm not angry. And she said, yes, you are. And then those nosy bodies, you know, the people in your group, they get nosy and they start, yeah, you're lying to yourself, you're lying to us, you know, all that stuff. You're angry. And, and, I, and I did something I hope I never forget. I went, I'm not angry. You know, I was trying to smile on top of gritted teeth. Do you follow what I'm saying? You see, my smiling has been my, my clothes, my hair, my jewelry, my car, my clothes, my, my house, my, my family, the girls I dated, the jobs I had, the titles I had. Those have been my smiles. And the gritted teeth have been this pain right in here. And I had no idea that all of you felt that too. I thought I was the only one. And so what I did is I said, I'm not angry. And she said, look at you, you're smiling on top of green teeth. And she said, who are you angry with? And finally I was able to get it out for the first time in my life. I said, I'm angry with my mother. And she said, okay. She said, that's all right. She said, let me ask you a question. Where is your mother right this red hot second? She loved that term, red hot second. 
I said, uh, she's in Raleigh, North Carolina, and I'm in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. She said, how far is that from here? I said, 1,200 miles. And she said, okay, David. She said, what did your mother have for dinner last night? I said, I don't know, Claire. I was here in detox. Come on, you know, been there three or four days. She said, what did she have for dinner? And I said, okay. She said, what would you have wanted if you had been there? And I said, okay, I wanted fried chicken, potato salad, string beans, uh, uh, tea, a roll, and, and lemon meringue pie. She said, okay. She said, David, what did you have for dinner last night here in the treatment center? And I said, I wasn't too hungry. I was kind of dealing with a few things, you know, kind of trying to figure a couple of things out, you know, trying to think through, you know, think through some things. And I had a little roll and a little coffee. I wasn't too hungry. She said, okay, David. She said, David, how much sleep did your mother get last night? I said, I don't know. She said, how much do you think? And I said, okay, seven hours. She said, okay. She said, how much sleep did you get last night, David? And I said, uh, well, I, I wasn't too sleepy. You know, I was trying to think through some things, you know, trying to, trying to, you know, just resolve a couple of things. And I, I wanted to smoke a little bit and I had to go to the day room. So I kind of walked around in there a little while. She said, how much sleep? And I said, I, I, was, I was laying down about an hour. She said, okay. She said, David, what did your mother have for breakfast this morning? And I said, I, I don't know. She said, tell me what she had. And I said, Okay, she had uh, two eggs over easy grits and sausage and, and uh, coffee and orange juice and toast with, with uh, strawberry jelly. And she said, okay, she said, David, what did you have for breakfast this morning? I said, well, I, I wasn't too hungry, Claire. I was a little upset stomach, you know. So I ate a little toast and a little coffee. She said, David, where is your mother right this red hot second? Where is she right now? And I said, uh, she's retired. She's probably, uh, she's probably uh, talking to a friend on the phone, watching a soap opera. You know, I'm not sure. She said, okay. She's watching the soap opera, talking to friends. She said, David, where are you right now? And for the first time in my life, I was had to look at where I was and what I was going through. And I said, I'm in a damn treatment center trying to kill myself. And she said something very important. She said, who has lost and who has won? She said, this whole thing is about surrendering. Becoming powerless. And she said, it seems to me that your mother's life is doing real well. And it seems to me that you're hurting yourself very badly. And she said, you might want to make a choice today. She said, you can choose to stop fighting your mother. I said, I can't. She said, I said, my mother won't. She, she want to fight back. I mean, she, she's got to fight back. And she said, the interesting thing, David, is your mother does not even know that you're fighting her. And I said, yes, she does. If she doesn't know, how can I fight him? And it's not a fight. If the guy you're fighting or the lady you're fighting doesn't know you're fighting him, how can it be a fight? She said, have you ever walked up to your mother and grabbed her by the collars and pulled her face to your face and said, Mother, every day the rest of my life I'm going to show you. I'm going to show you. I'm just going to show you. And let her go. I said, I've never done that. She said, then she does not know. And the battle you're fighting is in your head, right between your ears. That's the battle that you've got to make a choice about. She said, you've got a choice. You can choose to stop fighting her today by 5.30. And if you, don't, if you choose that, then you can stay here because I can help you. However, if you choose to keep fighting your mother and others, then you'll have to leave by 5.30 today because I cannot help you. No one can. No human can help you. And you'll wind up dead, committing suicide, drunk, in an insane asylum, or in prison. That's where you'll wind up. I never had it put that I had a choice. I mean, I, nobody ever told me I had a choice to surrender or not. Nobody ever told me that I could. I said, how do I choose to surrender? If I, if I choose to stop fighting my mother, how do I? I can't do that. How do I do that? I spent 27 years showing her for breaking that broom over my back. How can I do that? 
And she said, you can pray for your mother what you want for yourself. It was too simple. I said, okay, what else? And I said, okay, now what else? And she said, you can pray for your mother every day what you want for yourself. And I said, well, what do you mean what I want for yourself? She said, what do you want? And I said, I want to be dropped in a sane asylum or in prison. That's where you'll wind up. I'd never had it put that I had a choice. I mean, I, nobody ever told me I had a choice to surrender or not. Nobody ever told me that I could. I said, how do I choose to surrender? If I, if I choose to stop fighting my brother, how do I? I can't do that. How do I do that? I spent 27 years showing her for breaking that broom over my back. How can I do that? And she said, you can pray for your mother what you want for yourself. What's too simple? I said, okay, what else? And I said, okay, what else? And she said, you can pray for your mother every day what you want for yourself. And I said, well, what do you mean what I want for yourself? She said, what do you want? And I said, I want to be sober and peaceful and free. <laughs> she said, pray that for your mother. I said, my mother doesn't drink. <laughs> she said, that's okay, pray that anyway. And I had to agree to, to stay there. I had to agree to pray for her before I came back to group the next morning. And the next day, I was in the shower. And, and, and truly, I was scared to death to pray for my mother. I did not want to pray for my mother. I wanted to show my mother. And you know what? I prayed and nothing happened. I, and I prayed for her happiness and peace and, and, and uh, sobriety. And, and nothing happened. The shower didn't open up. The sky didn't open up. I mean, nothing miraculous happened. But something happened and started to happen within me. She said, process started. And she told me then, that day of treatment, she said, pray for every day now for two weeks. And I did that. And then I two more weeks. And then she said a month. And it's been over five and a half years, or right at five and a half years now. And, uh, and that's a very important prayer. Because something has started to change within me. You see, coming to believe that there's a power greater than myself, I had to believe and start to believe that this prayer is working. And it is. It's working. It's working. The other thing I want to share with you is a story that happened about 18 months into sobriety, and it, it really helped me with my psychostuff issues. I had gotten up that morning, and I'd been thinking, and I'd been in the shower. I was scared to death. I didn't know what to put on. I was on my way to work, and I was in the middle of the convention, and, and my staff was asking me all kinds of questions. I didn't have any answers to these stupid questions about printing and how many and when. And, and so I was on my way to work, and I started to pray the 11th step prayer. I was not on the 11th step, but I started praying. You know, God, I pray for knowledge of you, will for me, and the power to carry it out. You know, and I got in my car, and as I was on my way to work, I prayed that prayer over and over, and the, and the, more, the closer I got to work, the louder I prayed it. And then I changed it a little bit. I changed it a little bit, and I prayed, God, I pray for knowledge of you, will for me, and the power to carry it out. And I was just yelling, you know, it's hitting off the windshield, you know, and I was, I was trying to psych myself up to go to work. I was stark raving sober. And I didn't know what to do. And so I kept praying, and finally I said, God, I pray for knowledge of you, for me, and the power. You know, God, the, the courage and the guts and the fearlessness. And I kept, and I added some adjectives in there. You know, give me that. And man, I was psyched, you know, and I got to the office, and I got out of my car, and I went in. There were two employees there, two staff members, and they were waiting to ask me questions, and they asked these questions, and I could not handle it. And I said, excuse me, i got to go. And I ran to my office, locked the door, slammed the door, locked the door, and I called my sponsor, Keith, and I said, Keith, it's not working. <laughs> it's not working. I'm praying for power. I'm praying for knowledge of God's will. I'm praying for power. I want, I want courage and guts and fearlessness. And it's not working. And you know what he said? He said, are you praying for faith? I said, faith? I don't want that namby-pamby crap. I want power. You know, I, you know, I need power. I don't want that faith stuff. And then he said a very important thing. He said, David, faith is the power. I didn't know that. 
I said, faith? He said, yes. Faith to believe that there's a power greater than you. Faith to believe that that power greater than you has got a plan for your life today. Faith to believe that if you will bend your will and get out of his way, that you're going to be okay. Faith to believe that if you'll go do the next indicated thing, that when the day is over, or when this period of time is over, you will then understand his will for your life. Only then. I said, what's this next indicated thing stuff? He said, what's the next indicated thing? I said, well, I, I guess I need to go back and talk to those two people I left standing at the door. He said, that's a good thing. Yeah, you go do that. He said, then you go do the next indicated thing. He said, write it down. And I still have it on my desk. It's a little handwritten note. Do the next indicated thing. And I finished with those two people, and I did the next indicated thing. He said, now call me at 530 and let me know what God's will was for you today. Come to believe that a power greater than me can restore me to sanity. Third step is something that I, I had a hard time with. Make a decision to turn our will and our life over the care of God as we understood God. I read that step the first few times in the first months in this program. You know how I read it? I read it, turn my will and my life over to God. And I could not do that. When I came to this program, I'm, I was spiritually sick. When I came to this program, I had tried to turn my will and my life over to God many, many times. It never, ever worked for me long. And so that was an impossible step. And I was really sweating the stuff out. And a guy named Wilson, in a, uh, a discussion meeting we had, said something very important. I was talking about how I couldn't work this step, and I was scared to death, and I really was scared to death. And, and I said, I don't know how to work this step. And he said, David, you've forgotten the most important part of the step. You're not addressing that. And I said, what? He said, it says, made a decision to turn a will in life over. And I said, well, okay, I'm going to make a decision. He said, no. He said, if you decide right now, let's go out and buy the house across the street. You've made a decision about a house. Do you own it? I said, no, I don't own it. He said, then what do you got to do to own it? I said, well, I've got to get an attorney and I've got a realtor and go over and talk to the owner and set a price and, and, and then uh, drop a deed and go to the mortgage company and talk to them and you're going to get the financing order, set up a closing date and, and drop a deed and I'll sign the deed. And he said, then will you own it? I said, yeah, I'll own it. He said, how long will that be? I said, I don't know, six months, a year? He said, okay. Same thing is true here. He said, you're going to make a decision. And steps 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11 are going to be the process you follow to find yourself in a spiritual awakening, having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps and steps. Look, he said you're going to make that decision. All you've got to do is make the decision and then start doing the steps. Take the process. Let it work. That was very important to me because I didn't have to turn it over that day. I could not. I could not physically turn my life over. I was too scared. And the tools that I used to survive were pride, ego, job, I mean, all those tools, all those defects are what I needed to survive. I did not want to be without them. The last part of this step has become more and more meaningful to me as we understood God. And I kept thinking, why did they use the past tense on that step? Why did they say, as we understand God? Present tense. Why did they say, as we understood God? And you know, I want to share with you, about six months, a year ago, this, this kind of hit me. I was doing some inventory work, and I went back, and you know, I came to a time in my life, I was five, six, seven years old, early in life, and I was laying on, on the ground out in front of the home that we grew up in, in Raleigh, North Carolina, and I was looking up at the sky, I don't know if you've ever done this, on a day like today, and you look up and you see clouds coming by, and I was trying to make a rabbit out of this cloud and a lion's head out of that, have you ever done that? And I was, I was looking and I was watching these clouds, and I knew if I looked long and hard enough, you know what was going to happen? God was going to stick his head out from behind one of his clouds and go, Hi, Dave! And I was going to go, Hi, God! And he was going to say, What you doing today? Oh, I'm looking at clouds! That's how I understood God. 
He was my buddy. I was looking forward to seeing him. I really was. I'd lay there for hours, afternoons, and I'd really have a good time waiting. He never showed, by the way. He never showed. But I was looking forward to him. That's how I understood God. And in my disease, and in my ego, and in my drinking, I came to this program understanding God to be a very wrathful, a very domineering, a very unfair God. And it was impossible for me to turn my will and my life over to that God. I'm finding a lot more comfort to be able to turn my life and my will over to a God to say, Hi, Dave. Hi, God. Good to see you. Step four. Made our fearless and moral inventory. And, and, and my, I, I debated on this thing for a couple of months. And my sponsor, I want to have the right book, the right pen. You know, I, I, I knew it was going to be published. Bill probably made a movie or something. And I'm not sure. But I just knew it was going to be good. <laughs> and I kept debating. And finally, my sponsor gave me a yellow legal pad and two number two pencils. And on the first page, he wrote fears. And the second, skipped a couple pages, he wrote resentment. And he's underlined it. And a couple pages, and he wrote sex. And left the whole pad. <laughs> and he left me a lot of room. But, I, but he said, this is your inventory. This is what you're going to write on. Go do it. And he asked me to pray a prayer, and it's really helped me. And he said, the prayer was, God, please show to me in your time and in your way what I'm afraid of or what I'm resentful of. Show me in your time and your way, because in my time, I'd really mess it up. And so I started to realize what I was afraid of, and I started writing my fears down. I was afraid of black cats, Friday the 13th. I was afraid of walking in the ladder. I was afraid of that man who lived under my bed when I was a boy. He had a knife. He was going to get me with a knife. And you know, I was so scared. I'd lay there balled up, and I knew he was coming up the foot of the bed. And he'd have his knife and he'd disappear. And when I go to the ba- back to the bathroom again, when I had to go to the bathroom, I'd jump off the bed to the door. I mean, I'd, I'd jump like five feet and hit the door and wake up my pants and always get mad. And I'd jump from the, from the door and back to the bed because if I stepped off, he'd hit. See, I didn't know I had that man. But I did. My resentments. And when I wrote them down, it, it almost seemed silly. I mean, I'd write my fears down and I'd laugh about them. They were laughable fears. And then I went to, to the, the second part, resentments. And here's what my sponsor, it's just like the big book, it said to write them down, who am I sent for what happened, and then what it's threatening me. But then he asked me to do another thing which was very important. It's helped me a great deal. He said, I want you to write down what your part in that resentment was. And I had a hard time with that one because I felt like some of the beating stuff, that I didn't do anything. And you know what I'm finding out is that for me, the only difference between an event that happens in life and a resentment that is carried 27 years the only difference for me is my desire and my willingness to be the victim. It's the only difference. I got a lot of power out of that story about the kicking and the breaking of the, of the, of the uh, broom on the back. I drank over that, and it worked for me beautifully. And I would tell you how bad I had it, and how bad my mother was, and what a horrible life I had. And give me another beer. I used it. It was very powerful for me. And that's what my part in most of my resentments is not all, is my willingness and my need to be the victim. You see, I've been a part of the problem for so long, I don't know how to become a part of the solution. And I think one of the key things for me to become a part of the solution is stop being a victim. Start living. And then the sex activity, I just was very, very frightened about it. And I was very full of shame and guilt. But the important thing I saw there, and going back from the first moment I could remember and come forward, was a pattern. In all of my inventory, I saw a pattern. I saw that I did the same things over and over surrounding alcohol as an adult. And I kept doing it. I kept waking up in strange places with strange people, and I didn't know how I got there. I didn't know. 
But the one ingredient that was common in every time is I was drinking. Made sense if I stopped, I might not wake up in strange places in strange bedrooms. Steps six and seven have been a real joy. I, these have been the hardest steps and still are the hardest steps. My sponsor suggested, I finished step five, and when I did, by the way, I did the inventory, I, uh, he told me at the end, you know, I thought I was going to be on step eight the next day because step six is only a paragraph in the big book and step seven is only a paragraph in prayer. You know what I mean? What the heck? I could be through that tomorrow afternoon. Be on step eight tomorrow night, you know? And, and, and he said, uh, no, we're going to slow it down a little bit. And I want to share with you in the fifth step, just drop back a second, something that was very important, a story that he shared with me that I thought was very, very wonderful. He shared the story with me as I finished my fifth step. And by the way, he asked me to take my fourth step and he asked me to read it to God, to admit it to God as the step said. To get on my knees and read it. And so I did that. And he said, then get in front of a mirror and admit it to yourself. Read it and look in your eyes and say what you have done. This is your inventory. Start looking at that. Look at yourself and then come and confirm it with me. I mean, that was the worst part was over, really. I believe it. I really believe that. Going to him was not so bad after that. The third part of the step, fifth step. And then when I finished my fifth step, he asked that wonderful question. He said, is that all? And I said, yeah, that's all. And then he told me a story. He said, you know why you did this? And I said, yeah, you told me to. <laughs> he said, yeah, that's part of it. He said, but you know really why you did it? And I, I said, I don't know. He said, in the Middle Ages, when there were Christian crusades, he said, people would leave Europe and they'd go down and fight in these crusades, take months to get there, fight for years. And while they were there, they would kill, maim, maim and, and rape, and kill And they'd come back and they were treated as heroes, war heroes. And they were given property. And they were looked upon as, as uh, royalty. Noble nobility. And he said, and inside of them, they were dying. And they'd go to the priest in their community and say, I've sinned, please forgive me. And the priest would forgive them. And then they'd go back, and two months, three months later, they still couldn't live with themselves. And he said, and they would then go back and say, I'm not, I can't live with myself. And they'd say, okay, and they put sackcloth on them, and they put ashes on their forehead, and they put them on their knees outside the parishes in the village. And on Sundays or Saturdays when the people would come to, to, to worship, they would say, please forgive me, I'm sorry. Please forgive me, I'm sorry. And they'd stay there for a while, and then one day the priest would walk up and he'd rub the ashes off their forehead, and he'd say, please get up. Take that sackcloth off. And they'd take the sackcloth off. And then my sponsor said, you get up, David. And, he, and I got up, and he said, then the priest would walk over and put his hands on his shoulder, and he'd say, David, you are forgiven. Welcome back into the human race. You see, at that moment, I did not know that I had felt outside of the human race with what I had done, but I did. And to be welcomed back, to be a part of a healing to the fifth step was a wonderful experience to allow me to know that it's over. It's over. Step six and seven was going to be quick. And then my sponsor said, no, you're going to read the 12 and 12. Why don't you read step six one day and step seven the next day? And come back to me in a little while. And so I read it for a couple of weeks and I called him to let him know where I was. And I just wanted to report in. I've read it for two weeks, Keith. He said, that's fine. Are you angry yet? I said, I'm not angry yet. He said, well, read it some more. And I said, well, what am I supposed to be angry with? He said, just read it some more. You'll find out. So I read it more, and I got to a month. See, I read my third step for a month, so I figured a month is going to be the magical time. So I called him and I said, Keith, I've got a month now, and I've read this thing every other day for a month. He said, how angry are you? I said, well, I'm not so angry. I'm, I'm okay. I said, you know, a little bit. He said, read it some more. Second month went by, and I got real angry. Because see, here's what I started to do. I started to look at those defects, and I started to try to change myself. I started to not lust. You know, I'd go to work looking at bumpers and grills. I would, I, I would get in my car and I wouldn't look at anybody. I wouldn't look at girls passing anything. I mean, I'd look at bumpers and grills. And I'd get to work and I was fine. And I'd get to work and all of a sudden the secretary walked in. Here I go again. And I got angry with me because I could not change me. And I did not know that I could. 
And finally, about two and a half months, he said, I want you to do an inventory. I want you to take the seven deadly sins, pride, greed, lust, envy, jealousy, sloth, anger, gluttony. And I want you to define what they are. And I want you to define how you use them in your life. And I want you to define, more importantly, what they cost you when you do use them. And he said, then I want you to come back and we'll talk. And you know what I found? In every case, the direct thing that it caused was loneliness. I felt abjectly separate. And I still do. It's a process that I'm still learning. That I can't change it. But that I pay a price. I pay a price. Step 89 have been really wonderful for me. Uh, my sponsor said if I'd work these steps that I would start to act differently which would allow people to treat me differently. And I never, I said, would act differently allow people to treat me differently? He said, yeah, that'll work. You start making amends and you will see people treating you differently. I want to share with you about my mom. Go back to that because I think it's a wonderful thing that's happened. The first year and a half I was in recovery, I prayed for my mom every day. But I was very angry with her. And, and I didn't want to see her. I saw her Christmas Day, Thanksgiving Day. I called her when I had to on her birthday. I did not want to see her. In fact, when I was around her, it took about 15 minutes and I was one hacked off individual. And it was like she had a vacuum hooked up to me. Have you ever felt? It's like she had a vacuum. She's just sucking everything in me out. I mean, it's like, it's a fascinating feeling. And my sponsor said, put something between you. Put a chair between you. And so I did that. If she walked into the room, I'd step behind the chair. Put a table between you. So I'd say, let's talk at the table. And we'd go over to the table. And I knew something was there to separate me. And about a year and a half sober, my sponsor said, I want you to start writing your mother. And I said, writing my mother? I don't have anything to say to her. He said, I want you to go get some cards. Listen to me, David. Simple little cards, and I want you to write your mother. I said, what do I say? He said, I want you to say, dear mom, thinking of you, David. And I said, but I'm thinking bad thoughts. <laughs> you know what he said? He said, she won't know that. <laughs> and you know she didn't. And so I got my little cards. got a smiley moon face in it, and I put a think, dear mom, thinking of you, David. I mailed it. Three weeks later, every three weeks I had to mail a card. Three weeks later, I mailed a little moony face. And I, dear mom, thinking of you, David. And something wonderful happened. I got a letter back from my mom. And it had a cartoon out of the paper. And it was the first time I'd ever seen my mom have any humor. And it was a funny little cartoon. And she didn't talk about how my hair was and how I was raising my children. She talked about herself. And she said she was thinking about me too. And then I kept writing her and she kept writing me. And then she came to see me in that fall, about six months later. And here's what happened. It's a very important part. Because I kept praying for her. She came that day, and my brother was there, my sister was there, and I was there, and she came over to talk to us, and she sat on the end of the sofa. And she sat down, and, and she started to tell the story about how it was when she was six years old and sitting in her grandmother's lap, and how her grandmother was running, running uh, her fingers through her hair, and how her grandmother told her how beautiful she was, and what a nice person she was. And I'm thinking inside of me, everything within me saying, why are you doing this story? I've heard it 150 times. We are here to visit. You know, that everything within me, that motor running. And you know what happened? Something within me stopped me and said, listen. And you know what I did? I looked at this 72-year-old lady, and I saw her sitting on that sofa. And you know what I saw? I saw a lady that was abjectly, totally frightened to death. So frightened that she did not know what to say to her own children. And you know what I realized as I watched her? And she told me that story. You know why she told that story, I believe? Is she, she told that story because it was a moment in her life when she felt okay. And she felt loved and accepted. Probably one of few. And she told that story, and I listened and I watched her that day. And I saw this little lady who was really neat, who loved me. 
but did not know how to tell. I saw this little lady who was abjectly afraid. You see what I saw in her? I saw me. <laughs> I'm just like her. And I didn't know that. That Christmas I went to tell her I needed something. And I told her that I needed to change the day I celebrated Christmas. And my family members were very upset by that. I needed to have more time at Christmas with my family. Trying to set boundaries and recover. And my mom said, that's a wonderful idea. What a wonderful what a wonderful feeling that day. So I wrote her a letter. I said, Mom, we had never, ever been on a trip by ourselves together. We always had family, brothers and sisters, and Dad was always there. I said, let's go on a trip. Where do you want to go? And she said, I want to go to Washington, D.C. to see the cherry blossom. And so I wrote her and I sent her this little schedule, her little ticket, and on my fourth sobriety birthday, I picked her up, and we rode to Washington together for three days. And you know what happened? She shared with me how frightened she was as a girl and how her daddy was beat. She shared with me how she was beat because she didn't bake the biscuits right. And you know what? I was able to share with her how it felt when I broke the ice. And she was able to tell me she was very sorry. So, a healing started to take place. And it continues to this day. I was with my mom last weekend before I came here. It's a wonderful thing to, to, to love her. You know, to really be with her. She's a neat lady. And we're, we're making up for some long lost time to be together and trying to make a commitment of that. Step 89 is a wonderful step. I really believe it's about being of service to other people and if we start acting differently, we start, people start treating us differently. Step 10 is a very difficult one for me because it's a, page 86 of the big book talks about a step 11 really, but it talks about looking at my day and saying, was I resentful, afraid, selfish, dishonest that day? And you know, I believe that it's very important that those words are selected because when I am resentful, I'm being a victim and when I'm a victim, I cannot be of service. When I am selfish, I cannot be of service. When I am angry, I cannot be of service. And when I am afraid, I cannot be of service. I want to share with you a story, because this is very important. I did not know I did this all of my life. My, my, uh, my sister, Gail, called me about two and a half years ago, and she said, I want you to be in my wedding, Dave. And I said, sure, anything. I thought she was going to be an usher, you know, something like that. And she said, I want you to be in my wedding. I said, okay. She said, I want you to sing. And I said, you want me to be what? And she said, I want you to sing. And I said, sis, I, I sing in a choir, but I, I'm not a soloist. She said, well, sing with your wife. You know, my wife has a good voice. And I said, okay, we'll sing something. To be of service. I really wanted to be. And so she sent us this tape of Lee Greenwood and Barbara Streisand, the, the, the song to me. And, and she sent me the sheet music and a tape of it. And for two months in my car, I played this tape, man. And I was going around singing, you know, do you, you know, wait, good, man, that's great. And I'd sing along here, practice with this accompaniment. And we get to the wedding in October of 91. And I, I, I'm there. And, and we, we got the rehearsal going. My, my sister's in the back with her husband to be, and they're going to listen to this great song. And my wife and I practice, and, and I opened my mouth, and it came out like a brick. <laughs> it was it was terrible. And you know what? I was so frightened. I was so afraid that the, the, the nausea, that the fear, the physical pain in my gut, I couldn't sing if it had pain. And I looked at my sister, and you know what she did? She kind of leaned over to my brother-in-law to be, and she went, oh, no. And I knew she was thinking, oh, my, what am I going to do? I can't even fire him. He's my brother. You know? He said, what are you going to do with this guy? And so what happened, what happened is I went home. And we went to the rehearsal dinner. I don't know if you ever had this happen. I was so afraid it was like I wasn't there. I was watching people's mouths move, but I could not understand. They'd ask me questions, and I'd go, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I wasn't, I was frightened to death. And the next morning I got up to do my quiet time, my devotion time, and I was in there reading and praying. And you know what I started to do? Very important part. I started to get sick. 
And I started to think, <clears throat> well, our voice sounds, <clears throat> oh, sounds pretty bad. I thought, 6 o'clock in the morning, I thought, if I can wait till 7.15, I can call her and I can go, Well, this is David. I woke up this morning, I got a real sore throat. That pyramid deal? Real sore throat. I can't sing today. You have to get somebody else. I thought about that. I thought, mm-hmm. You know, I used to go to the bathroom and, and, and get sick. And I do that when I wouldn't go to work. I, I get sick. And I go in, I take my glasses off, and I look, you know. Like that. I have to look sick. You know, you got to play the part. You know? Yeah. Just David. And I'm practicing calling my sister at 7.15. Now, my sponsor, the first, first month in sobriety, he told me something very important. He said, on your home mirror where you shave every morning, I want you to write the words, David, you're wrong. <laughs> and I said, Keith, I've got this low self-esteem you don't understand. He said, you also got an ego and it's killing you. <laughs> right? You're wrong. You don't know how to be wrong, David. Write it up there. That morning, that's been there, still there. I've got it up there. And I'm doing this this morning. I'm getting sick at my sink. And I looked up and I saw, David, you're wrong. You know what I was able to say? Thank God I'm wrong right now. Because if I was right right now, I'd have to live this way the rest of my life. And I started inventorying. I stood there and I looked and I said, my mama is in, in uh, Raleigh that's 65 miles away. She's asleep. My sister is in Raleigh. She's 65 miles away. My wife is asleep. My two boys are asleep. There is no one in this house awake. There is no one here making me afraid but me. I was the only one. That was very important information. And I went back and I prayed about it and I was able to go and I sang. I didn't sing like Lee Greenwood, but I was able to be of service to my sister. And I think that's what it's all about. Step 11 is very important for me. The knowledge of God's will for me, power to carry it out, prayer through prayer and meditation. You see, I have this thinking disease, I really do. And for the first time in my life, this 11th step is allowing me to slow down that process. It's allowing me to learn to live without the thinking and know that I'm okay. I've had a real difficult time in meditation because my mind is so active and I have all these thoughts starting in it. You know, I even, they told me to meditate with page 99 and 12 and 12, you know, the St. Francis prayer, you know, Lord, make me a channel of the peace. I'd start meditating and go, okay, what's a channel, channel, what's a channel? I'd start debating what's a channel. Now, what's peace? What does it mean? And all of a sudden, I'm all into this stuff about peace and channels and <clears throat> wasn't too peaceful. And a friend of mine in Alamo said on 3.15 in the ODAT book, there's something on meditation you might want to read. And I read it. And it worked for me beautifully. And it says to give yourself one minute and to remove every thought from your mind. And in that, literally, just clear it. And then bring an image into it. And my image is a white rose. And I see that rosebud and I see it opening just opening up. They talked about a, a fruit basket or a sunset as a suggestion. And then at the end of a minute, you can let other things in. Now, I want to tell you that I tried that. It didn't work the first day, but I kept trying. And you know what I finally came to the conclusion? Is that I believe that when God created each of us, when he created each of us, he gave us space. And you know what I've done with that space? I've given it away. In being fine and trying to please and saying yes, and I've given it away. And what I think the meditation time for me in this, this step is so important is it's allowing me to reclaim the space I was originally given. It's allowing me to see that I'm okay, that I'm fine, that I'm alive, that it's okay where I am today, and it's all right, and I don't have to think my way out of it. 
You see, I've learned to think because I'm afraid, and I'm trying to learn to unthink because I believe that there's a power greater than me. And that, that, will, that has worked for me, that clearing my mind and, and then letting anyone thought. And what I've done is I've treated that area in my brain as, as it's like this is mine and nobody's going to take it. My thoughts are not going to take from me what my God has given me. They're not. And I've really treated it that way. It's like they're not coming in. And what's happened is that over the years, it has developed. And being at peace is a really wonderful thing. And I really believe it allows me to learn how to live without thinking. And I desperately need to do that. Step 12 says, having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps. I was scared to death of a spiritual awakening. I tried. At 30 years of age, I left my, uh, my job. I resigned and went back to divinity school to be a minister. I have spiritually fought my way through life, trying to find an answer. And I was scared to death of this awakening. You see, I always wanted this dramatic uh, burning bush. And what I'm learning is that the awakening comes as an inside-out deal. It's not an outside-in deal. And for me, the process of working the steps is inside-out. And what I'm finding is that this spiritual awakening is nothing real dramatic. It's a coming about. It's a, a redirection. It's a heading toward in another direction. It's going 180 degrees from where I've been. And some days I'm not able to get there. Some, day, some days I head back the way I did. Some days I'm thinking the way I did. But those days that I can redirect my energy. My sponsor said this, these steps were to be of service, and uh, the whole purpose is to be of service. The whole purpose is to, to try to be aware of what's going on. He said another thing which I really like. He said the first five steps of the 12 are about learning who I am. One, two, three, four, five. Who am I? The next five, six through 10, are about accepting who I am. Not who I thought I was, or who my mama told me I was, who am I? When I finished reading my seven deadly sins, you know, the inventory had me doing six and seven, and I finished reading it, he said, well, now you've done it. I said, done what? I finished. He said, nope, now you've done it. I said, done what? He said, now you know exactly who you are. And your job now is to start accepting the good and the bad. I really believe that's what those last five steps are for, six through ten. And then he said steps 11 and 12 are about forgetting who you are. This program's been very special to me. It has offered me an opportunity and a way of living that I never dreamed possible. You see, my life, and I want to tell you a story in closing because I think it's very important. I heard this on the AA tape. I don't know how authentic this is, but I'm going to repeat it. In South America, there's some South American Indians, and they capture monkeys as a part of their livelihood. And they do it in a unique way. They take this clay pot, very thick pot, solid clay, and on the top of this thick bottom, they put this little cavity, and above that, they put this long noose nap. And in that cavity, they put sweet beans, kind of like jelly beans to you and I. And that cavity, or that, those long hoose neck, is just big enough for the monkey to stick his hand in like this and go down and grab a couple of those sweet beans. And they put it out in a clearing in the jungle in the morning. And they leave. Well, the monkey sees this curiosity, you know, and he smells the sweet beans, so he goes over and starts looking around. And finally, he sticks his hand in, feels those sweet beans, grabs a couple, and then he can't get his hand out. His fist is too big for that long hoose neck. And he stays there all day long, and he just jerks and pulls on that jar, trying to get back to the safety of his tree. Jerks and pulls, literally sometimes pulls his arm out of socket until the Indian comes back with a club and the Indian walks around and clubs him over the head and knocks him unconscious or kills him. And at that moment, and only then, does the monkey begin to do this. The monkey releases the sweetness. And the Indian pulls his hand out 
uses the same jar, the same sweet beans to capture another monkey the next day. I am like that monkey. Everything that's happened in my life, I've grabbed hold of. And I've held on because I thought I had to. I've held on because I thought if I didn't, you would think I wasn't okay. I would, I, I've held on because I thought if you found out how afraid I was, that you would not want to be with me. I held on because I had to be good enough. I had to be invited back to that house. I've held on. And what the program, and what the, your willingness to hug and, and handshake, and to say it's okay, and to share from what's happened in your experience, what this program and these steps have been able to do is slowly but surely, I've been able to open one thing at a time and let it go. Now, what I'm realizing is not one big let go. I have to let every different thing go in its own time. I had to let my mom go at a certain time. It's killing me. I've had to let my wife go. I've had to let my children go. And all of those are separate exercises. Thank you for the privilege of letting me come and share here today. It's been a wonderful uh, conference. I wish you Godspeed. Thank you.